the Wednesday morning estimates. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth will come through the scriptures this morning. Turn in the word of God to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We have uh, some folks just coming in this morning. That's fine. We'll get some things handed out here and a handout for you. I don't know if that we'll get that far this morning. Some things we want to look at with respect to the Magi, with respect to Herod and the murder of these babies, the flight into Egypt, and all the rest. So I'll start by handing these out, and then we will proceed. You see on the screen that we are looking at the 13th and 14th areas. We're looking at the 13th and 14th, and that comes from the harmony of the Gospels that we're using. Does anybody need a harmony? There's a harmony. You don't really need it to follow this morning, but it's good to have. Just kind of give you an idea where where we uh, are this morning. There you are. You have a harmony, but you don't... Have one of those. You'll need that for this morning. Okay. You want a harmony? You got one. All right. <clears throat> you see, there are only 17 items here in this section on the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. And you can read down through them after the escape to Egypt and the murder of the babies. Number 14 then is from Egypt to Nazareth with Jesus, which is uh, all of a uh, couple of verses. And then... Uh, the childhood of Jesus, which is, again, just a couple of verses. We don't have a whole lot on the childhood of Jesus. All right, That's why there were quite a few apocryphal legends and Catholic legends and stories and things that then came up. In reality, after we cover the material we're looking at here this morning with uh, the escape to Egypt and the murder of the babies, um, really the only event we have left in this section is the, the visit to the temple when Jesus is 12 years old. A very well-known story in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 50. We've gone through it a number of times in the past already. Uh, In fact, Pastor Ralph went through it a number of times in years gone by. It's a a very well-known passage to us, and I'm looking forward to getting to that. Then uh, then we launch on into the baptism. We get on to the next section, which has 12 points to it, the truths about John the Baptist, which is primarily John chapters 1 through 4. The Gospel of John, chapters 1 through 4. There are some other supporting um, texts. There are some other supporting passages, uh, mainly in uh, uh, Matthew, well, the Synoptic Gospels for the Temptation. But once we get past the Temptation, almost virtually the rest of that whole section is all going to come to us from the Gospel of John. And then uh, then we'll launch from there. We'll go into the Galilean ministry. Now, if you look from page 1 to page 2, the Galilean ministry has 56 events associated with it. It is the longest period of, of any period in Christ's ministry. It's where uh, quite a number of the miracles were accomplished, where quite a number of the parables were given. Uh, really, much of what we think of in terms of the ministry of Jesus Christ was in that Galilean ministry. Um, to the point where we find that when we get to the the last Judean and Perean ministry of, Je- of Jesus, we're really talking about the last six months of his life. So for a ministry that's three and a half years long, uh, three of those years are in the Galilean ministry. And then by the time we get to the last Judean and Perean ministries, we are uh, approaching the crucifixion. We are within six months of the crucifixion. And then... Second to the uh, Galilean ministry, the next longest section that we will deal with is, uh, of course, the Passion Week. And uh, the Passion Week takes up a considerable amount of the gospel record as well, and, and, and it should, as far as that goes, as being uh, central to the, uh, the uh, gospel message and the story as we have it here. All right, I'm going to hand out a couple more of these items, and then we'll, uh, we'll get ready. This is just a handout for this morning. and We may not even get this far this morning. So if we do, we do. There you are, man. And then there's the harmony that we're following. There you go. Don't bother reading the handout at this point. It won't make any sense to you until we get that far. 
you'll see that it starts with a point six on the top of it, and that's because the page you don't have has points one through five. So we will uh, get there when we get there. All right, Matthew chapter two, verse thirteen. When they had gone, that is with reference to the Magi, verse twelve. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken of by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. All right, this will be our study this morning. Before we do, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that sins are confessed, distractions are set aside, that our souls are prepared for the Word of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your Word and the opportunity we have to assemble together and receive instruction. We thank you for the faithfulness of your Word in our lives day by day. We thank you, Father, that the believer who trusts in you will never be disappointed. We ask now that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we might see the riches of your glory in Christ Jesus, the blessings that have been poured forth upon us. Father, help us to recognize and celebrate the every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that is ours in Christ. Father, uh, it's just an amazing thing to stop and consider that you have revealed yourself, the infinite truth of your word to finite man, and we thank you this morning that we can take in that truth. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are following up then with the visit of the Magi, which we dealt with last week. Uh, the material that takes us down through verse 12. Interestingly enough, when they arrive in Jerusalem in verse 1, they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews in verse 2? And that title, king of the Jews, immediately sets off the alarm bells in Herod's thinking. Uh, something we want to remind ourselves of this morning and help us to understand why it is that he wants to massacre these babies. Uh, these Gentiles from the east are showing up and asking about the king of the Jews. And Herod calls into his, uh, into his presence the chief priests and the scribes in verse 4. And he asks, where is the Christ going to be born? Where is the Messiah going to be born? And that connection between king in verse 2 and Messiah in verse 4 is very important to observe. Because Herod had at least a satanic understanding of the scriptures. All right, it's important that we understand that. Herod was not a believer. Herod does not have divine viewpoint understanding of the scriptures. An unbeliever cannot learn the word of God. But they can read the text. They can have a mental, academic understanding of certain things. And you better believe in the tests you and I face and the temptations and struggles and conflicts that it may come about that the adversary who's tempting us has a, a, a factual knowledge of the Bible. And we'll see this coming up in the temptations when we get over into chapter 4. You just glance at it and see the temptations and the devil used scripture to tempt Christ. And uh, we're going to deal with that when he quotes from the Psalms and when he misquotes and when he twists and when he leaves a part of a verse off in order to try to make his deceiving point. So it's not unusual that Herod has a knowledge about the Messiah but he certainly has no faith in the Messiah. He is not a believer, and that becomes quite clear throughout the remainder of this study. Now, the Magi, he had sent them with a lie. In verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. That's not, obviously, why he wanted to know where this child was going to be. Uh, his intention was murder from the very beginning, and God warns them about this. We see in verse 12, having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left. That is, they withdrew, they fled. And we'll see some vocabulary as it pertains to that verse here this morning, because it also pertains to verse 13, and it pertains to verse 14. And uh, 
other past, uh, other places in the gospel record. We've studied fleeing in, in the past as it pertains to the life of David's study. David spent a lot of his life running. Uh, much of his time when, when Saul was trying to kill him, David was a fugitive. And so fleeing uh, is an important study as we understand it because there are times and places to flee. David did, Christ does, the Magi do here. Joseph and Mary flee into Egypt. They're not running from their problems, and they're not running motivated by middle attitude sin. They are running in obedience, and I hope that will become clear as well. The Magi here, likewise, they fled. They left for their own country by another way. All right? If uh, after Bible class, if, if you're so convicted and something that came across in the message really humbled you and really uh, convicted your soul and you, instead of going out the glass doors to the parking lot, you sneak out the back door somewhere and you know, creep down the alley and kind of drive out hoping nobody sees you. Well, that, that's an indicator, alright? <laughs> These magi are leaving by another way. In other words, they found the back door, they went out, they, they left town, they returned back to the east. They're not returning to Herod. Of course, they're doing so for right reasons is what I'm trying to illustrate here this morning. Alright. Let's uh, make some observations here. There are six of them all together I want to give you. And you have the sixth one um, on that one-page handout that I gave you. But before we get to that one, let's just simply observe, first of all, point one. After the Magi had obeyed their dream instructions, Joseph also received a dream. After the Magi had obeyed their dream instructions, Joseph also received a dream. Matthew 2.13, and if you want to compare it back to verse 12, include both verse 12 and 13 in this point. Dream instructions. Dream instructions. Keep in mind the dispensation this is <coughs> taking place in. God, we now have a complete canon of Scripture. We no long, God no longer communicates through uh, direct uh, revelation by means of dreams. All right? The... Word of, the canon of Scripture is complete. All things necessary for life and godliness has been supplied. Any dream that occurs today in our present stewardship and our present dispensation is not a revelation from God telling you what to do or where to go and so forth. After the Magi had obeyed their dream instructions, Joseph also received a dream. Now, this is the second time that we know about that Joseph has received dream instructions. The first time, you recall what it was, it was in chapter 1, when uh, he was engaged to uh, a virgin that ended up being pregnant, and how was he supposed to know that she was still a virgin that had ended up being pregnant? He thought that she was pregnant the way everybody gets pregnant, and said, you know, I, I don't want to go through with this marriage, and then made his arrangements, as we looked at in chapter 1, he was going to divorce her, and uh, not go through with the uh, the wedding, and go through with the marriage, but the angel appeared to him. The angel explained things to him. The angel um, related to him how Mary was, in fact, still a virgin, that she was the uh, chosen to be the mother of the humanity of our Savior. And I believe Joseph then exercised the greatest level of faith that any young man has ever exercised in the history of young men. All right, He believed the angel that this pregnant fiancé of his was in fact still a virgin bearing the Christ and so forth. Joseph, uh, demonstrating faith in the Lord and tremendous character, um, awakes from his dream and obeys the Lord. And if you just want to peek at it, in the end of chapter 1, verse 24, I think is remarkable. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. The angel says, marry her. Joseph wakes up and marries her. Immediate obedience. We're going to see that again and again and again right here in chapter 2 because here's the dream and uh, Joseph immediately obeys. Doesn't stop, doesn't ask questions, doesn't debate it back and forth in his mind, doesn't, you know, with any kind of weakness of faith, doesn't decide to get a second opinion or, you know, go find uh, somebody and see what they think about it. He understands the will of God. He obeys the will of God. What a simple uh, pattern for us to follow. All right. Mary does get most of the attention in the gospel record because she lives long enough and she lives throughout Christ's life. She witnesses the crucifixion and so forth. Joseph dies here very quickly. In fact, we don't see Joseph again after Christ is about 12 years of age. And so there's not as much material on him in the scriptures. But the glimpses that we do have on Joseph, I think, paint a, a tremendous picture of maturity and faithfulness and uh, devotion to the Lord. And uh, and I'm not surprised by that. I don't think God the Father would select uh, a dummy or select 
uh, you know, a reversionist or some kind of a spiritual nitwit to be the, the human adopted father of, of his beloved son. I don't think the father would have selected that. He selected uh, Joseph and Mary and, and uh, instilled that character within them. And we keep seeing this again and again. All right, now in the context of this dream, sub-point A, there are four imperatives. Four imperatives in this passage. An imperative, we understand, is a command. An imperative is a command. A four-part command. And we can just list them out here for you in verse 13. He says, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there. These are the four imperatives, and I'm just going to outline them for you. One, two, three, four. Okay? But it is a four-part command. Get up, take, flee, and remain. So sub-point one now. Get up. Eris passive participle, masculine singular nominative of a gero. E-G-E-I-R-O. Number 1453 in your Strong's Index. Agero has many different applications, including the resurrection, by the way. It simply refers to a rising. You know, if you're seated, you need to rise in order to stand. If you're laying down, you need to rise in order to stand. If you're dead, you need to rise from the dead if you're going to be resurrected. Okay? <laughs> so Agero is um, really a, a basic word for rise that has a variety of different flavors depending on the, you know, depending on the context of when it's used. If it's a dead guy in the tomb and he is a gay road, well then he's risen from the dead. If he's just a sleeping guy on a, on a, on a bed and he a gay rose, well then he woke up. Okay? Or if you're seated and you a gay row, you stood up. Okay? We don't build a whole lot of doctrinal substance on the concept of rising. It's the context of rising that then determines whether or not we have a doctrinal issue here to deal with, such as a dead person rising up in terms of the doctrine of resurrection. We would then want to uh, deal with that, obviously. But it is an aorist passive participle which precedes the action of the main verb, Okay, which we'll get to here in a moment. The main verb is flee. All right. But the aorist passive participle precedes the action of the main verb, showing conditions that must take place. Joseph can't do any taking, can't do any fleeing, can't do any remaining, unless he first gets up. Okay, and if he doesn't get up, then he won't take, he won't flee, and he won't he won't uh, remain, because if he doesn't get up here, the the soldiers are on their way, the baby will be massacred, and the things there. All right. So first imperative is get up. Eris passive participle of agero. E-G-E-I-R-O. Agero. Uh, about a year ago now, I stopped giving you the transliterations on this. We're just working on getting you guys to start reading the Greek text right there. E-G-E-I-R-O. That's the long O. That's the omega. It looks like a W, but it's the long O, the omega. Agero. E-G-E-I-R-O. If you do have a Strong's Concordance and you want to pursue this as a word study, Agero is number 1453 in the Strong's Index. All right, first command is get up. First command is get up. <laughs> and I think that's pretty applicable for believers in any work assignment. If we're laying down on the job, <laughs> if we're falling down, knocked down in carnality, the issue is get back up. Confess your sins. Get back in the battle. See, David wasn't a man, a man after God's own heart because he never sinned. He was a man after God's own heart because every time he sinned, he confessed and he stood back up again. See, all right. The second command, point two, take, take. This is an aorist active imperative of paralambano, paralambano. We've already seen in the participle activity that must... Um, precede the action of the main verb. This is now an aorist active imperative. It coincides with the main verb. All right. Para lombano. Number 3880 to take. Para lombano. Now lombano by itself means to take. Lombano could be to take, to take up, to receive. But para lombano, think of what we had with... Um, 
parakaleo, when we were teaching exhortation and comfort and encouragement with paraklesis and paralambano, where we, I'm sorry, with parakaleo, where we come alongside. Remember that? Remember, you've got a, a believer and he's hurting and he's struggling in the faith. And we have an opportunity to come alongside and comfort. That's parakaleo, to come alongside. So keep that same alongside idea with para. And apply it now for take. Take alongside. In other words, bring to yourself, enfold, embrace. See, this is a protective measure that Joseph is taking with respect to Mary, with respect to the baby Jesus. Is that he is not only taking them, but he is taking them alongside, drawing them to his side, and taking them under his protection into the land of Egypt. All right? Paralambano, number 3880 in the Strong's Index. All right? We uh, appreciate the way the Scriptures portray provision, protection, priorities, leadership, all of the guidance and wisdom that the Father offers. And He offers these things. And we should, we should recognize them and we should thrive in them. Now, the world hates it. The world attacks it. See? In many cases, when it comes to spiritual leadership, when it comes to spiritual protection, it doesn't quite jive with the feminist agenda, for example, <laughs> where, you know, women ought to be independent and can do anything a man can do and all these other things. The Bible records that there are provisions for protection, for guidance, uh, for priorities within the family. And here is Joseph fulfilling his responsibility to protect his wife, to protect his child. This is not just in physical protection, but in spiritual shepherding, training up a godly seed. See, it's fathers that are commanded to not provoke their children in wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Okay, and the mother's helping that. They're the helpmeet. It's the father's responsibility to train up that godly seed. In any event, there will be more of this uh, in this series and in further series, as I say in Wednesday mornings, we focus on a lot of family issues. Now, get up and take. Take to your side. Draw to your own protection and flee. The third command is flee. Present active imperative of fugo. P-H-E-U-G-O. Fugo. To flee. That first letter is the phi. That means the P-H letter. E, U, gamma for G. Again, it's the long O. Fugo. To flee. All right. Pretty general word. Pretty general word. It can be used of the right kind of fleeing. It can be used of the wrong kind of fleeing. So often when we study concepts like boasting, you know, there's a sinful boasting that's motivated by pride and selfishness. And then there's a godly boasting. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boasting and celebrating the glory of what God has done for you. I love boasting over good things. When, uh, when a believer achieves a victory, when Christ faithfully provides, when the Father is glorified. I can boast in that all day long. I'm told to boast in that. As it says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. But it's the same word. It's just boasting. The context determines whether it's godly boasting, wrong boasting, and so forth. Jealousy. It's a sinful jealousy. There's a godly jealousy. See, anger. Well, I think we're all familiar with the carnal anger, the sinful anger, the wrong kind of anger, and yet there's a righteous anger. There's be angry and yet do not sin. See, Jesus Christ was filled with a righteous anger when he uh, drove the money changers out of the temple, and we'll see things like that. Fleeing is one of those concepts, again, where vocabulary doesn't necessarily help us out because it's the same word to flee. Whether you're fleeing for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, the word to flee, the basic word for flee, is fugo. As we saw, David fled many times, but he fled from Saul and he fled in the will of God. Jesus Christ flees many times. We're going to see times when they try to throw him off a cliff. We're going to see times where they pick up stones to stone him. We're going to see times where they want to put him to death and he flees. He is hidden from their sight. He disappears. He passes through their midst and he escapes. Okay? Many times. And he does that. I'll tell you right now, every single time he does that, he does that in the will of the Father. Because he never sins, he never disobeys the Father. The one time he doesn't flee, though, <laughs> Garden of Gethsemane. 
when the hour has come. And he says that. He says, Father, the hour has come. The soldiers come. Judas kisses him. No more fleeing. It's time to submit to the test. Okay? He's told to get up. He's told to take. He's told to flee. Fourthly, he's told to remain. See, well, how long is this test going to last? He's told to remain. Oh, and I didn't highlight for you on the third one. It's a present active imperative on fugo. We've had an aorist passive participle. We've had an aorist active imperative. We've had a present active imperative. Now in this third one with, and the fourth one now is also a present active imperative. Get up, take, flee, and remain. Get up, take, flee, and remain. Present active imperative of Amy, or Imy. Pastor Theme always called it Imy, but my EI diphthong has always been an A sound, and so I don't change my Amy to an Imy. I call it Amy, just like I pronounce any other EI diphthong. Amy, number 1488. To be. Yeah, simply exist. Be there. Okay, this is a stative verb of of being. Okay, this is our word for is, am, be. Okay, be in church. How do you obey a command like that? Well, you go there and there you are. (laughs) And as long as you don't leave, you're there. Right. I am on the platform. Okay. Words like am and is and be, it's just a state of being. It's an existence. That's why the simple name for God is I am. The eternal existent one. Okay? And so he says, be there. Get up, take, flee, and be. Be there. Be there. How long? Well, until I say. All right? How long do these tests last anyway? <laughs> you know, we get awful frustrated sometimes and with our testing, with our undeserved suffering, with our divine discipline, whether we deserved it or not. The duration is still in God's hands. So well, how long is this going to take? Well, the Father knows precisely how long it's going to take. And chances are you and I want it to be over a whole lot sooner than it needs to be. Because we, we want it to be done with so we can go back to what we were doing. The Father says, no, no, you haven't learned the lesson yet. <laughs> this test will last until I say so. Now, he's faithful. He won't test us beyond that which we're able to bear, so it'll never be too long. But guess what? It'll never be too short either. <laughs> it's going to be just right in the Father's perfection. Any test we face, undeserved suffering, divine discipline, you name it. So how long is this going to be? Until I say. Until I say. It's like boot camp, you know, and your drill sergeant tells you to drop and he gives you one word, he just says drop. And you understand in the context of the imperative drop that the idea is not just simply to throw your body to the ground, but you are immediately to start engaging in a push-up type exercise. <laughs> and you don't stop until when? Until he says so. <laughs> and don't you dare ask how many you're supposed to do. You just get doing them. All right? He'll tell you when you've done enough. So this is Joseph's dream. You want me to go to Egypt? (laughs) Now, again, we mentioned this a little bit last week. Joseph and Mary didn't have a lot of money. We know when they came and they presented the first fruit offering in the temple, they brought the two birds. They brought the, the cheapest offering they could to dedicate a firstborn son. And that's, that's not because they were cheapskates. It's because the father made provision for them, had three different levels of offering you could bring according to your means. And the, the wealthy could bring the top one, and then, the, you know, your middle class brings the middle one, and then the, the poor brings the, the, the smaller one, the less one. And that's the one that Mary and Joseph brought when they dedicated their firstborn son in the temple. So we know that they, uh, they're not loaded, they don't have a lot of money, they don't, you know, travel to Europe for vacations and things like that. <laughs> Joseph's got a carpentry business. He's self-employed. He's not making a whole lot of money because, you know, about a year, a couple of years back, he had to relocate from Nazareth to Bethlehem, trying to get his business up and running in a whole new town. All right. But see, the father knew that they were going to be fleeing this night. 
already in the Father's plan. He already had it worked out. He knew that this was the night they were going to flee. And he already made the finances available for them. And we spoke on this last week. When the, when the Magi are here and they're presenting gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, this is all the cash that's needed. This will get them to Egypt. This will sustain them while they're in Egypt. This will get them back from Egypt. The, the gifts of uh, gold, frankincense, myrrh will not only get them back from Egypt, but it will get them resettled back in Nazareth again. It will get a business back up and running again with operating capital. This is a remarkable provision from the Father. And He supplies what's needed according to His wisdom. So when the dream comes, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Joseph obeys. Now, we do pay some attention now to the tenses. As I say, it starts with an aorist passive participle, and that's got to precede the main verb in the sentence. Then you have an aorist active imperative of take, which is just a, a single action. You do it, you've done it. All right? You think of aorist as just a point. Okay? Aorist is just a point in time. It could be past, present, future. It tends to be past, but sometimes can be present. It's just a point. It's a dot. When we draw it out, an aorist is a dot. Okay? Take and flee now is a present active imperative. We could say be fleeing. We could say, um, we could even render it as be a fugitive, be fleeing. This is describing a continuous activity. We don't draw a present as a dot. We draw a present as a line. All right. So get up, take and be fleeing. And then the fourth imperative and remain or be in Egypt until I tell you. Kenneth Wiest renders an expanded translation. Some of you have it in your libraries. Kenneth Wiest, expanded translation of the Greek New Testament. Translates the verse this way. He says, Now after they had returned, behold, an angel of the Lord appears in a dream to Joseph, saying, Having arisen, take it, you know, since I woke you up, <laughs> having arisen, Take at once under your care the young child and his mother, and be fleeing into Egypt, and be there until I tell you. And be there until I tell you. And Wiest uh, really, he calls it an expanded translation, and sometimes it's not very readable because he's trying to carry across the, the, the value of the verb tenses, the aorists and the present tenses, and the, the uh, rendering of like paralambano for not just take, but take it once under your care as, a, as an expanded understanding for paralambano. The young child and his mother and be fleeing into Egypt. Remember, he's no longer a brephos. He's no longer an infant. Up to two years have gone by. He's now uh, a toddler, we would call it in our modern terminology, up to two years of age. All right. Now, there are not only four imperatives. Subpoint B, there is also an explanation. There is also an explanation. Subpoint B, an explanation. Are you all following this new format? This is pretty new with that yellow bar or the golden bar on the left. Okay. Does it look yellow or gold? It's supposed to be gold. <laughs> looks puke green. Okay. Anyway, I got 35 million colors on the laptop. I got 256 coming out of the <laughs> projector. So it does the best it can. Um, we're still under main point one, sub point B. Okay. Kind of compress the outline numbering on that left bar. Think of it as a menu bar. You know, a little while ago we had a uh, a 1A4. Okay, now when you're outlining in your own notebook paper, you can go ahead and stretch it out and indent and do what you want to do to keep your outline format. But we're just compressing it in that left bar uh, so that you can see where we are in the outline and then we get maximum amount of text on, on any particular screen. He gets an explanation. Not only is there an, a command, in this case four commands, but there is also an explanation. Okay? In verse 13, uh, get up, take, flee, remain. And then it says, until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. All right? For. We have here an, an explanatory conjunction. For. Okay? Telling him why. 
giving him a reason, an explanation. All right? This is also extraordinary. God sometimes will give explanations, sometimes he won't. Sometimes it's simply a command and the issue is obedience. Sometimes it's a command, the issue is still obedience, but with the command comes an explanation. All right? Now think about it in terms of parenting, in terms of children, very young children, say. Are they entitled to an explanation? Do I have to tell a child, a young child, say, why they need to do something? Or do I simply tell them what to do? Say, and say, do this, do that. Don't touch the stove. See. Why? <laughs> because I said so. <laughs> All right? Oftentimes, an explanation is not required or even warranted. Okay? I'm talking about with young children. Certainly with slaves. We don't have slaves in our culture, but put yourself back in the Old Testament time. You don't explain to your slave. You order your slave and he obeys or he doesn't. Okay? I'm trying to show a progression here now where you go from a child or from a slave, say, child to a son to a brother to a friend to a fellow worker. There are a variety of capacities in which you and I as church age believers function and operate. Now, a slave is not entitled to any kind of an explanation, but a fellow worker is. Okay? We are fellow workers with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, a young child doesn't have the capacity to understand the explanation, perhaps. But an adult son does. And remember, the father shows the son all things that he himself is doing. Because the father loves the son. And God the son does the things that he's observed his father doing. And I, I find, again, a remarkable degree of maturity on Joseph's part. And we don't know how old he is. You know, we speculated that Mary was 12, 13, 14. You know, they got married young back then. Okay? At least the girls did. Joseph, likewise, could have been 12, 13, 14, probably 14 or older. Okay? It's also conceivable that Joseph could have been 30, 40. Okay? That an older man would still be married to uh, a young virgin and so forth. That's in keeping with the customs of the time. We don't know how old Joseph is. But the Lord is giving Joseph here not only orders, but also an explanation. An explanation. Okay? So hold your finger on this and go back with me to Genesis. You can teach the whole Bible in Genesis. Did you realize that? And chapter 19. Actually, chapter 18 is where I'm headed. And I want you to see something here. Genesis chapter 18. And hold your finger there or use a bubblegum wrapper. Or I'm going to stick a pen there. Okay. Genesis 18. In the context of this now, we're dealing, we're back in the life of Abraham. We've got Abraham, we've got Isaac. I mean, I'm sorry, we've got Sarah. God promised Abraham a son. Sarah laughed, didn't believe it. Abraham didn't believe it. You know? They said, hey, let's use the handmaid and she can have a baby and, you know, Ishmael gets born. All of that's already happened now at this point. And God says, you know, my plan's not going to work through Ishmael. My plan's coming through Isaac. God doesn't need our help keeping his own promises. All right? Now, this is the, this is the setting for what I'm trying to get across here now in Genesis 18. Now, notice, um, the Lord and, and a couple of angels are passing through. They're on their way to Sodom. They're going to go destroy Sodom. And they're passing by Abraham and Abraham sees them, and so he invites them home real quickly. He says, come on in, and he obviously, and then verse 6, he has to go tell Sarah that they've got extra people here for dinner and all of that. Now, they're getting ready to leave and go destroy Sodom, and I want to see something very interesting here in verse 17. Okay? In verse 16, the men arose from there and, and looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them and sent in, with them to send them off. And the Lord said, this is very important in verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Okay? Here's the Lord tossing it around in his own mind, so to speak. 
like you and I do. <laughs> okay? Now, in omniscience and sovereignty and wisdom, the Lord doesn't have to do this. But this is how it's being communicated to us. In his own consideration of the options. Remember, God knows all the what-ifs. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, God doesn't have to explain himself to Abraham or to anybody. God is sovereign. He can do what he wants to do. He can order what he wants done. He doesn't have to offer explanations. But he is now thinking and considering whether, not that he has to, but whether he ought to whether it would be good and right and perfect to reveal to Abraham this extent of his will. And he concludes that it is. That Abraham is his friend. Called, not in this passage, but called elsewhere, the friend of God. Abraham uh, has the measure of faith and the maturity to have the uh, insight into what God's doing here. And notice in verse 19, For I have chosen him, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Now here is the covenant nation of Israel that's getting started in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham has to have the teaching, he's got to have the doctrine, he's got to have the wisdom in not only what has been revealed, but also in the Father's thinking in order to raise Isaac in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, in order to have uh, ministry to his grandchildren, specifically Jacob. All right? And so the Lord concludes, yes, Abraham is entitled to this. Not, not entitled, but Abraham is going to receive this information. And so he says, he starts telling about Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham begins an intercessory prayer ministry, and I won't go into the rest of the chapter. I just wanted you to see that deliberation in verse 17. Does Abraham need to know this? Okay. If you want to think of it in terms of need to know, you can. If you've got a military background and you understand classified information, something might be secret, top secret or higher. Even if you have a clearance for that level, you don't necessarily get that information unless you have a need to know. Okay. And the Lord here has concluded that Abraham has a need to know, and he supplies the information on the pending destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Taking it back now to Matthew chapter 2. Joseph has a need to know. Joseph has a maturity. Joseph has a level of faith. Joseph, if you think Abraham had an awesome responsibility in fathering Isaac and in being the grandfather for Jacob... If you think Abraham had an awesome responsibility, what about Joseph? You talk about it being important for a father not to provoke his child to wrath. (laughs) Just for a moment, contemplate Joseph um, leading Jesus to wrath. Wow, I don't even want to think about that. If, If Joseph provokes Jesus to wrath when he's five, six, ten, man, then he's no longer spotless and blameless. He's no longer sinless. He's no longer qualified to go to the cross. You better believe Joseph and Mary had an awesome responsibility in training up a godly seed. All right? And so Joseph is supplied here with an explanation. He says, for. He's going to get additional information, additional explanations in, uh, for instance, verse 20. When it's time to leave Egypt, and he says, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For, explanatory, Gar, once again, for those who sought the child's life are dead. He gets an explanation. And then when he has additional concerns, he gets more information. Because he gets a third dream in verse 22. So, time and time again, Joseph is taking these matters to the Lord and getting answers. So he has imperatives, four of them. And an explanation. Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. It's a search and destroy mission. Both verbs are in this verse. Zeteo to search and apolumi to destroy. So subpoint one, zeteo. Z-E-T-E-O. Zeteo. 22.12. To seek, to crave, to demand. This is not just a search where you're looking around casually. This is a deliberate search to apprehend and obtain. Zeteo, 22.12. 
We're commanded to do this, by the way. Seeking ye shall find. Knocking it shall be opened. Asking ye shall receive. We are supposed to be searchers of the Word of God. Searchers of the, uh, the Lord's glory. Zeteo, number 2212. <laughs> One of my favorite Greek words because it's so vivid. In terms of not just searching, not just, you know, looking around. Kind of like, you know, something casual and you keep your eyes peeled, right? You know, and you kind of casually you're looking for something over a few days or weeks or months or years or whatever. And you're just always, in the back of your mind, you always have, you know, it'd be kind of nice if I came across this at some point. And so, in the back of your mind, you, you know, just keep your eyes peeled for it. If it shows up, it shows up and you get and you buy it or whatever. If it doesn't, you don't lose sleep over it. You just... You know, keep your eyes open another day. You understand? That's a casual kind of glance. That's not zeteo. Zeteo is an active search. Zeteo is a thorough, energetic, unrelenting desire to not only find, but to apprehend, to take, to receive, to seek, to crave, or to demand. Number 22.12. And destroy. It's a search and destroy mission. The destroy part is apolumi. Apolumi, A-P-O-L-L-U-M-I, 622. To destroy, to ruin, to perish. If it's in the passive, this verb is rendered to perish. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him might not, Apolumi, might not perish, might not endure eternal destruction in the lake of fire. Whosoever believeth in him might not, Apolumi, but receive everlasting life. Herod desired to apolumi the Christ. King Herod desired to apolumi. Not just kill. Okay? <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's basic words for kill. There's basic words for murder. This is destruction. This is satanic. In fact, apolumi is, is related to Apollyon, the destroyer, the angel of the abyss. Okay? The destroyer. This is destruction. This is the devil who is intent on destroying the seed of the woman. Because that's really what's going on. In Genesis 3, the Lord promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That was a promise. And the serpent didn't want to see that promise fulfilled. <laughs> you know? And how many times in between Genesis 3 and Matthew 2, how many times in between there has the serpent tried to crush the seed of the woman, to destroy that promise? I think it's too many to count. All right. I think right from the very start. I mean, that's, that's what this is all about. If, we, if, if we're going to just approach... Herod from the Columbian Encyclopedia that, well, he, he had mental illness and he was insane and suffered from a variety of venereal diseases and things and he was unstable. What are we doing? We're, we're looking for earthly explanations for angelic conflict? Is that what we're doing? Okay. Let's put things in the context where they belong. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve fall into sin. But God's plan wasn't thwarted. God had a design for that plan. It was called the cross. Remember, the Lamb of God is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Before Adam and Eve were ever created, the, the plan was for the Lamb of God to remove the sin of the cosmos. And so in Genesis chapter 3, that promise is given. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Alright? So, it's important that we keep these things in our thinking as we go through. Now, what happened right after Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve have a couple of children, right? That's not seed of the woman, but they, you know, they, she was their mom. <laughs> it was seed of the father. We know that. Men have seed. Women have eggs. Okay? Biology. <laughs> you know how that works? All right. Only not until Mary then was a child born of a virgin and Jesus came into the world. But in any event, the promise was that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent. And now here's Adam and Eve, and they got these two boys, Cain and Abel. Which one of them obviously is godly? <laughs> Which one of them obviously is wicked and evil? And there's the devil thinking, hey, 
I can, I can take care of that seed of the woman promise right here, right now. I'll use the one that's mine and kill this one. Okay? So right from Genesis 4 on through Genesis 6 was an angelic attack on the human race. Fallen angels making babies with human women, bringing giants into the world. It was an attack on the human race. Every attempt to destroy the nation of Israel, the bondage in Egypt, attempt to destroy the Jewish race. Okay? An attempt to keep the Christ from being born. Now, what do you think all those attempts on David's life were all about? <laughs> God promised the Christ was going to come to David. Oh, go kill David. Don't let him have any babies. All right? So, the idea on perish, he seeks to destroy, not just kill, not just murder. He wants to apolumi, he wants to destroy. The satanic motivation wants to bring the child of promise to a destruction. Wants to end the plan of God. Remember, if he succeeds, there's no redemption for the human race. So, it's a search and destroy mission. We'll have more comments on Herod and the satanic role coming up under main point four. All right, point two, main point two now. Joseph's obedience was immediate. Just like we saw back in chapter one. Here it is again, immediate. He didn't wait until morning. He <laughs> didn't say, oh, come on, Lord, it's three in the morning. I haven't even had my coffee yet. You know. He didn't wait until morning, but he left while it was still Night. He left while it was still night. See, when you know the will of God, how long are you going to take to obey the will of God? When you know the will of God, how long are you going to take before you obey the will of God? <laughs> kind of like when I got engaged to Sharon. <laughs> and Pastor Ralph said, uh, well, want me to marry you today? <laughs> you know? He said, why wait? If you know the will of God, do it. You know, you know that she's the woman God designed for you? You know? Go get a license. I'll sign it. Ralph offered to do our wedding right then, right there. Okay? Well, you know, Desert Storm came up and six months later and nine months later and whatever else it ended up being. Didn't get married till May of 91. But I'll never forget Pastor Ralph Braun saying that, saying that when you know the will of God, how long are you going to wait before you do the will of God? Okay? We've brought this up before in the realm of confession. We know that if you're carnal, it's the will of God for you to confess. Well, how long are you going to wait? Paul kept asking the Corinthians that. He says, you guys are still carnal. I want to teach the word of God to you, and you can't handle it because you're out of fellowship. You're babes in Christ. So if you know it's the will of God... How long are you going to wait? Joseph didn't wait, didn't ask questions, got up and did it. He didn't wait until morning, but he left while it was still night. While it was still night. Subpoint so A, this is kind of a long one. You don't have to write the vocabulary down if you want to, if you don't want to, but you can, and you'll see why in a moment. Joseph got up, took, left, and remained. Okay. Joseph got up, took, left, and remained. And that point is spelled out precisely like the imperatives were spelled out from verse 13. Joseph got up, took, left, and remained. He was told to get up, take, flee, and remain. And so what did Joseph do? He got up, he took, he left, and he remained. So, some point A. Joseph got up, and if in parentheses you can put Egero. E G E I R O. I didn't put a Strong's index number down because it's the same that we had uh, in the last point. Okay? You should have it already written down. It's number 1453. Okay? He took Par Lombano, just like he was told to do. Okay? Same vocabulary you had before in point one. He left, and he remained. The word there for remained is Amy, E-I-M-I. It's the same vocabulary you had in verse 13. Number 1488. Okay. 
He got up, he took, he left, and he remained. That third term where he left, okay, he was told to get up, take, flee, and remain. He got up, he took, he left, and he remained. Okay? The first, second, and fourth words are identical in verse 14 that they are in, and verse 15 that they are in verse 13. But that third term is different. That third term is different. And if you're not reading the Greek New Testament, you may miss it. You're going to miss it entirely. So, examining the scriptures, the imperatives in verse 13, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, fugo to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. The explanation's given. Okay? So Joseph got up, Egero, and took Paralambano, the child and his mother, while it was still night. See, he's obeying immediately. He's not waiting for morning. Because, see, remember, the explanation was given. He understands the urgency of this activity. Not only does he have a command, but with the additional explanation that's given, he understands the purpose, he understands the father's thinking, he understands the urgency. So while it was still night, and left, anakoreo, left for Egypt, he was told to, to flee, he was told to fugo, so he left, anakoreo. He was told to fugo, to flee, so he left. On a correo. All right? So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night, and he left for Egypt. Verse 15 gives us the fourth activity, and he remained there. And that's obedience to the fourth imperative, remain. It's the Greek Amy to be, and so he was. He got there, and he was there, and he stayed there until told otherwise. Okay? So there's four commands. The first one, the second one, and the fourth one are all identical in the vocabulary from what he was told to do and what he did do. It's that third one that's different. Okay? It's that third one that's different. Does that mean he disobeyed? No. Doesn't mean he disobeyed. But in examining the distinction between Fugo and Anacoreo, we find it remarkable that here is a mature believer who understands not only the command, but understands the explanation, understands the thinking, understands the purpose. And who makes application? Because he is fleeing when he anakoreos. That's what I want to get across here. And I'm already almost out of time. How does that happen? All right. I knew I was getting close when my coffee ran out. <laughs> I said, oh man, I either got to get another cup of coffee or we must be done with the hour. All right. Someone can bring me a refill and we'll go for another hour. <laughs> All right. No, we'll wrap this up. I want to tie this together, but I don't want you to walk out of here without getting this first, because this will give you something to chew on for the uh, upcoming week. Okay? Because it's this third word now, it's this anakoreo now, that's different from the imperative. He doesn't fugo, he anakoreos. Okay? And it doesn't mean he disobeyed, because he did indeed fugo. But in his mind, what he knew he was doing... He wasn't fleeing based on fear. He wasn't fleeing in the wrong way. He's fleeing in the right way, in obedience. Okay? And so, well, I've got another, another tool here, too. I think this shows up better at night. We can give it the spotlight. You can barely even see that, can't you? All right, I'll stick with the underlines. Um, he's told to fugo. He's told to flee. And so he gets up. And he anakoreos. Alright? He flees. But he understands why he's fleeing. He understands what the intention is, what the purpose is, what the objective is. And he's fleeing for the right reasons. And in his own, in his own application, this is what he's doing. Alright? And I'll leave you with this vocabulary. Anakoreo. A-N-A-C-H-O-R-E-O. Anakoreo. Number 402. To withdraw, to retire, to take refuge. Those are the principal ways that this word is translated. It's got any, any number of shades, but the idea is, is that you are leaving and you are leaving in, um, in the face of something. On a battlefield, this word would be used of a retreat. 
okay, to retreat from the front line of battle, to fall back. All right, the, the army doesn't retreat anymore. Did you know that? They changed the United States Army. <laughs> they changed the vocabulary, the terminology a few years back, and who knows how many millions they spent doing it. But now in all the training manuals and all the orders and so forth, it's officially now it is a tactical retrograde. The army, when they need to fall back and reposition, it is now officially called a tactical retrograde. See, it used to be called a retreat. <laughs> but now it's a tactical retrograde. Okay? Because... The American army doesn't retreat from anything. But we will tactically retrograde. We will move back to a more defensible position. And, you know, anyway. That's, in, in a military sense, that's anakoreo. It could even be used of simply just walking backwards. Okay? That's anakoreo. Um, in fact, there's some secular uses of anakoreo that speak of that. Um, a lot of application there, mainly used in Matthew, but we do have a Mark reference and a John reference three times in the book of Acts. Okay? And if you don't have all the scriptures down, we're going to come back to this concept next week. But you see how it's used all throughout Matthew chapter 2. And notice, this is what the Magi did in verse 12. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi anakoreod. The Magi anakoreod for their own country by another way. They withdrew. They retreated. They took refuge. They escaped. Different ways that we can use English terminology to apply to this concept. We will come back to this next week. I'll share one final thing with you here before I do. A great, uh, a great resource in uh, word studies is Vines. I don't know if you have Vines at the house. It's Vines Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament Words. It's a, uh, the, the more recent volumes have a blue cover on it. It's a real helpful study uh, book for, for word studies. Uh, you don't have to know Hebrew and Greek to read it. Uh, it's keyed to Strong's numbers, and so you can do a lot of studies just based on Strong's numbers. And uh, it's also keyed to um, uh, English words, for instance, like depart. Okay? And you think, well, depart. How many words can there be for depart? <laughs> you know? Like, isn't it simple? I mean, in Texas, don't we just basically have, you know, go? <laughs> I guess, well, you yeah, fixing to. In Texas, you could be fixing to go somewhere, and then you go somewhere. But, all right. but in the Greek, how many words are there for go? Okay, well, anago is a basic word there to go. So there's one. And parago, another compound of ago, is two. And hupago, there's three. And aperkamai, there's four. There'll be a few erkamai compounds here, including dierkamai, exerkamai, katerkamai. And then uh, the eighth word to go is poruo. And then uh, probably some compounds of poruo, like ekporuo, anakoreo. There's our word, anakoreo. It's the tenth one in the list. It's the tenth one on the list for depart. Oh, but it doesn't stop with just ten words for depart. There's op, apokoreo, ekkoreo, there's korizo. That's not a sausage taco or anything. That's a Greek word to go. Okay, Apokorizo, diakorizo, analuo, apoluo, exami, metairo, aphistami, apolasso, metabino. All right. And those are just the verbs. 22 verbs to depart. Okay? And then you can get into your nouns for departing or departure. And you've got a bunch of those. Not three of them. All right? So, 22 verbs to depart, plus three nouns for departing or departure. Okay? Because each of these verbs is so descriptive and it's so vivid. And specifically, anakareo, what Joseph is doing here, he is withdrawing in the will of God. He's not running from his problems. He is withdrawing because he understands that his work assignment is to protect this child. And so he is withdrawing in the plan of God, obeying the geographic will. He also knows that it is for a duration, but that there will be a return. There will be a return. Clearly, the Christ has to come back. <laughs> the Christ has to come to Israel. The Christ has to go to the cross. 
All right. And so Joseph, in his maturity now, is told to flee. He's told to fugo. But because the father's given him additional information, and because Joseph understands the will of God, he has a maturity and a faith to understand the plan of God, he knows that he is simply withdrawing for the time being. That there will be a return. And that this Christ is going to fulfill the Father's plan. And so he's told if you go, he takes his family and he anakoreos, he flees in faith, withdrawing for the moment, knowing that there is going to be a return. And that is a, that change of verbs there is a, is a testimony to the faith of Joseph in applying the word of God in his life. Alright? Well, we will come back to this next hour, next hour, next week. And, uh, well, so we got to points one and two. Next week, we will try to give you three, four, and five so that you can then get to your handout, which is point six, and uh, go into a, uh, a uh, theological journal in the treatment of Old Testament quotations and how they appear in the New Testament. Very important, and Matthew 2 is a great study to show that. So you have a handout there to look at, but you won't really need it until we get that far in, uh, in the study. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives, for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.